Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. If you're a guest, thanks so much for worshiping with us. My name is Brant. I serve as the pastor here at Fairview, and we're honored uh, to have you. We did have last week and. An, uh, guest appearance at some level, uh, preaching from Pastor Devin, and he did a tremendous job. Thankful for him being willing to to fill in. And uh, as I was sick, and he referred to himself as the third string. I just want you to know, I just don't think that's true, right? He's first string all the way. So thankful for uh, Pastor Devin doing a great job last week. He did kind of move us ahead, so we went ahead and kind of jumped to the next sermon that we had. In queue, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna move back at some level in our order, and we're gonna continue looking at the common rule. And the common rule is something that we've been looking at the, the past several weeks. I've shared with you that it comes from a book by Justin Early, and he lays out a framework of of really habits, and it it is four and four, and and we've shared it with you in the past of. Uh, of different habits that basically he cultivates for his week. The reason this is such an important concept and book for me is when I was going through just a really difficult season with my health and all kinds of different things. I read this book and I basically just kind of adapted it as my rule of life. And it was incredibly life-giving and grounding and stabilizing. And so I wanted to share it with you. Now, you may be here for the first time, and so the idea of a, of a common rule doesn't make any sense. And so if that's you, I want to explain it a little bit. A, a common rule is not a list of rules. And I think that's the first thing that's important to understand. The word is not rules, it's the word rule. And it comes from the Latin word regula, which is where we get our ruler from. So if you have a wooden ruler, that, that is, uh, comes from this word. But it also is where, through kind of translation, we get our idea of a trellis. And so we have considered that vines grow, creeping vines anyway, grow on trellises. And so you can kind of see in the logo that trellis structure, and you have this vine that's growing up that. Well, I want today to consider this this idea of a trellis and a vine and, and I, I should thank Rick, Rick, uh, our, our keyboard player, Eichler, got me this for Christmas. So this is the Sharpie Magnum. Uh, so not a paid advertisement, but here we go. So when we think about a vine, the first thing that all plants need is what? Soil. Great. Wow, that is really something. So... You have the soil, and then I have suggested that we have a structure. And this is the idea of a trellis. And so we have the soil, we have the structure. But there's one element that we haven't talked about that I think is really important. What else do you need for a vine to grow? A sun. Thank you. Man, awesome. Right? You need the sun. 
And so what goes in the soil? Well, you have this root structure, right? That's all down here. And then coming out of that, you have these vines that grow through the trellis. And on them, when it grows, you get these leaves and flowers and all this stuff, right? And that is moving, all of this is moving directionally where? Towards what? Towards the sun, right? Plants grow towards the sun and they, they need that sun in order to grow. And so as we think about our lives, I want to suggest that, that this is very much reflective of what we need. And I know this is not high tech, so some of you guys may not see it clearly, but man, yeah, and I, I lose whenever I move it because somebody doesn't see it. But we think about what we are called to as those who follow Jesus. And C.S. Lewis says, and I've quoted this regularly, that, that the whole purpose of gathering here, the whole purpose of the church, the whole purpose of everything that we're doing in our lives is to become little Christs, right? To be formed into the image of Christ. And in order for that to happen, we need to be rooted, as Paul writes in Ephesians 3, rooted and grounded in what? In the love of God in Christ. And so we have to have our roots in the security of God's love for us, which is displayed through Christ. When we put our trust in Christ, we have this certainty and this assurance that God's love is secure and that roots and grounds us. And then on the other side, what are we growing towards? Well, we're growing towards that we have the sun here, but I would, I would change, you know, S O N, right? So, so we have Christ as, as what we are moving towards. So our branches, if you will, extend towards Christ. The direction of our lives is towards Christ. The, the affection of our hearts is towards Christ. And, and everything within us is not only rooted and, and grounded in the love of God in Christ, but it's also growing towards Christ. Does that make sense? And what enables this to happen well in the middle is this structure or this, this rule. Does that make sense? And, and, this is, and this is necessary in between the two. And I think this is where we're, we're going to, to see the importance of, again, this this trellis, this structure, this rule uh, in, in the call that we have to grow into Christ likeness. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. I would ask if you would stand in honor of reading God's word. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Let's pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now and that you would take these words of truth that you've given us. And we ask that you would, by your spirit and by your grace, that you would implant them into our hearts and into our lives, that they ultimately might bear fruit in and through us. And, and in all of this, all that we do today and in our lives as we go, we, we pray that we would bring glory to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we 
consider this passage of scripture, I want to see two offerings of our bodies. We are looking at the portion of the common rule. We've looked at the portion of the common rule that deals uh, with our time and kind of how we structure that. We've looked at the portion of the common rule that deals with our relationships and how we engage with others. We are now looking at how the portion of the common rule that deals with our bodies and how we use our bodies. And so the first way that we can offer our body is to sin. Now, Paul refers to sin in a way that I think is important for us to consider. When we think about sin, what do we typically think about? Things that we what? Things that we do, right? We think about our actions, and and that is very much reflective of what we find in the scriptures, these things that we do. But there is another way, as we think about the way Paul describes sin, where it is a power that is actually external to us in some ways. We're offering our bodies to sin, and, and sin has this ability to reign or to rule over us. And this goes back to what we find in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. We have God coming to Cain, and he counsels Cain, and he says, Cain, you have, you have these desires, these murderous desires for your brother, and this power of sin is crouching at your door, right? It's, it's desire is for you. It's desires to take over you. So when you think about sin as a power that is crouching at your door, that I think is very similar to Paul writing, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires, right? So, so sin is this power and it has a desire for your body. Okay, And specifically, Paul even says the parts of your body. And there is a way that this power can work and you can, can be brought into this. And I think this is, this is something that is important for us to consider because we hear these concepts like sin and these ideas of reigning and, and all of these ideas. Uh, scriptures and and words, and they sound to us kind of conceptual. And so I think it's important to consider what does this actually mean? What does this actually look like in our bodies, in our daily lives? And, and this is, this is where Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, I think a helpful merger of the two, right? He, what what we're about to read, let's say is a 5,000 foot uh, kind of spiritual perspective, does that make sense? You, that's high level dealing, dealing with spiritual realities, these unseen realms that Paul talks about. And, and he's going to present that. And then he's going to move to what I call the five foot, or in my instance, five foot nine perspective, right? Of, of how this plays out. And so we'll, we'll see this. We'll start with this 5,000 foot view, Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. Paul writes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And so Paul is saying that, that you are in this condition of being spiritually dead and that there was this power that was at work where? In the world, right? So pretty massive 
canvas that he's talking about. He's saying there's this power that's at work in the world that's, that's animating the natural lives of people. And that was at work naturally in your body and, and in you, right? And so these are, these are kind of these high level realities that, that are, are, again, beyond us. The whole world, right? The ruler of the power of the air, these massive kind of concepts. But now moving down to the five, nine, maybe five, nine and a half uh, perspective. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thought. So these massive realities, the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work among the world in the disobedient, it moves now to the inclinations of what? Right? Of, your, of your flesh, of your body, these impulses. Now, do you have those? Do you have inclinations? Do you have impulses? Do you have appetites that lead you in certain ways? Well, absolutely, right? We all do. We all experience these inclinations. We all experience these impulses. We all experience this on a regular basis. And, and what Paul is doing is he's connecting this high-level reality with, with what you actually experience. And he's saying that in, in, in those ways, you don't see it, right? It's not like there's this massive dark cloud that literally physically encompasses your body that you can see, right? But it is at work in, in these ways that are, that are experienced physically, that are experienced in your body. And, and this is where Paul is saying that these are the ways of the world. And so you were born into this reality, when you came into the world, there's a way of the world that was operational around you. Guess what? Your parents, no matter how wonderful they were at some level, participated in the ways of the world. You, you grew up with people who operated in a certain way, who acted in certain ways, who thought in certain ways, who reacted to situations in certain ways, right? That, it's like what we talked about a few weeks ago. It's like a water to fish, Right? The wise old sage said to the young two fish walking by, Hey boys, how's the water? And the two fish swam away a little bit more, and one turned the other and says, What in the heck is water? Right? So that is a terrible joke. I apologize. I, I did not execute that well. I'm going to work on that. But there is a reality that's surrounding us that we're just not aware of. But does it shape us? Oh, my goodness. In, in all of these ways, right? It's, it's massively effective. And, and the way that we experience this, I think, is we, we have all of these habits and, and ways of living that we're not even aware of, right? You have habits, lots of them, that you have developed that you don't even know that you have. Now, some of you do because... You know, your wife tells you, stop picking your nose, <laughs> right? Or something like that. But there's all these habits. You know, it's true, right? I think there's an insurance company that is studying. I want to say like 76% of men pick their nose or something like that. So probably higher than that. So there's, there's habits that you're aware of, but then there's all of these habits that you're not aware of. There's these ways that you are responding constantly that affect you in significant ways. And 
and you're not, you're not even conscious of them. And there's a way that that leads towards destruction. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, what is wrong and destructive is done without thinking about it. The wrong thing to do seems quite natural, while the right thing to do becomes forced and unnatural. Is that true in your experience? How many of you all have tried to have a diet since January? I don't know if it's possible to be on a diet when it snows outside. I think that's like automatically impossible. Do you ever prefer carrots to chocolate? Naturally. No, that's what Willard's saying. The natural, the most natural way of engaging is towards what's unhealthy and destructive. And he says what's unnatural, what's difficult are the things that are healthy, right? That are life-giving. I explained this several weeks ago with sledding in the snow, right? Those first routes that are formed in the snow, that's where you go fastest. That's where you just kind of naturally gravitate. And, and the ways of the world are like that, right? Just the way people operate. And, and I'm going to move that route in a snow example to an inward expression, which is a rut in the dirt. Have you ever had your car or truck in a rut in the dirt, Right? What is the most natural thing to do when your tire's in a rut? To keep on driving in the rut. What's the most difficult thing to do? Get out of it. When you think about habits, they're ruts, right? And we could talk about how all of this works at some level. But your body actually, your brain loves ruts because it doesn't have to think about things. And so it stays naturally in ruts. And to get out of those is difficult. It takes intentionality in, in many ways. And, and this is where Paul's saying there's these ruts that are formed. We naturally carry out the inclinations of the flesh and the thoughts. But here's the thing with ruts in the dirt and routes in the snow is they take you somewhere. Does that make sense? You're not just stationary in them. They are taking you somewhere. And that's what, when we think about plants, Plants are always growing one way or another, right? They're not just like stable and should we grow today, right? That's not the point. And, and you're like that. You are constantly moving and being shaped in one way or another. This is constantly happening. And it's always moving. You're moving in one direction or another. And, and so because of that, these, these ruts, they become destinations, right? They're, they're, they're moving you towards something. And, and like I said, with the sledding at the bottom of that hill that we were sledding on was a brick wall, right? That's problematic. And, and I think that's, that's what we find in scriptures. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death and destruction. There's this, this natural progression towards destruction that that is unfolding at higher levels, but it's actually unfolding at these kind of micro levels in, in your own life. And so what he's saying is when you offer the parts of your body to sin, they become weapons of unrighteousness. What is a weapon? What does a weapon do? It harms, it destroys, right? Whatever it is. And a weapon 
is a description in, in Paul's words of what can happen when you offer your body to, to sin. What, is, what does that weapon do? What is the weapon of your body? And he actually says the parts of your body. What do you do? Oh, what a weapon does. You destroy yourselves and others. Does that make sense? So there's this power of sin that when you offer your body to it in all of these ways, it weaponizes you for your destruction and the destruction of people around you. Do you see how this plays out? And, and so that's the option. It's, it's like you start doing things because you have this freedom and they're the things you want to do. But after a amount of time, what happens? Why do you do the things? Because you want to anymore? No, because you have to. Right? That's enslavement. And that's the reality of offering our bodies to sin. Now, secondly, he says, you offer your body to God. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Now, he has been writing in the section previous to this about baptism. Right? These are, these are believers, by the way, that he's writing to. And he's saying, he's describing your baptism, that you were united with Christ spiritually. That, that when you went into the water, you experienced this union with the death of Christ. And you died. Oh, can you hear me? Might be my end. When you came out of the water, you were raised with Christ. And now his life, the life of his spirit is active in you. And you are spiritually alive. And after that happens, when you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ and you're forgiven and you're filled with the Spirit, you know, you take this step of, of baptism as an, as an act of obedience, then everything else is downhill sailing. That, I mean, that's how it was for me. Was that not your experience? Everything's just easy after that, right? All of the difficulties that you had before go away. No, right? The power of sin over you is is broken and you are brought from death to life, but you still have all of this flesh, as Paul talks about. You still have all of these habits and all of these uh, ways of coping and all of these responses that, that are in your body. And, and that's what he's saying. You have to continue. The offering of yourself to God is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing responsibility. You're constantly offering your body to God. And, and we see this in Paul's own life, right? Paul, in all of his you know, incredible example, writes in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So what does, he, what does he have to do to his body? He has to discipline his body, right? Because he knows if he doesn't, where this thing's headed. And, and, and so he recognizes this, this responsibility with, with the body, right? And I think this is important because we can get so focused on these spiritual realities that we miss what this actually means for the bodies. Dallas Willard, I quote him all the time and that's not gonna change, uh, writes, and this is kind of a long quote, something that I think, I think is helpful here. It's helped me. He says, so what we find then is that the body is the place of our direct power. It is the little power pack 
that God has, God has assigned to us as the field of our freedom and development. Right? So there's all kinds of things in life that you can't control. Right? And yet there is this way in which God has given you this body is something that you have this control over, this power pack. And here too, here too, to use the, and to the use of, and training of the body is the place where faith meets grace to achieve conformity to Christ, right? So, so again, where are we moving? In this body, in this power pack, in the decisions that we're making, we're, we're called to move where? Towards Christ's likeness, conformity to Christ, right? That's where this thing's to be headed. And, and our power pack, our, our control over our power pack, over our bodies, is to be utilized along these ways that partner with the grace of God in bringing us to Christ-likeness. He goes on, he says, learning Christ-likeness is not passive. It is active engagement with and in God. And we act with what? With our bodies. Moreover, this bodily engagement is what lays the foundation in our bodily members for readiness for holiness and increasingly removes the readiness to sin. And so this is where we now offer our bodies to God as weapons for destruction. No, as weapons for God, weapons for unrighteousness, or weapons for righteousness, weapons for, for Christ-likeness. And, and bringing this about is, is where this whole rule of life comes from. Right, And so I preached a couple weeks ago when a few of you were here because it was the, the snow day. Uh, and we, we looked at Daniel. And Daniel, when it comes to rule of life, the story of Daniel is really formative because Daniel and his fellow servants get captured and brought where? Babylon. And they maintain faithful to, faithfulness to God. And the first way they do it is three times a day. What does he do? He prays, right? He kneels and prays. We're going to talk about this. And he does that at the expense of his life, potentially. The other element is their diet, what they ate, right? And, and they ate the way God had called them to, not the rich foods of the Babylonians. And the reason was they were modeling what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. They were in Babylon, Surrounded by the culture of Babylon, and they knew where that lays because the Babylonian culture will chew you up and spit you out. It will form you into the image of a Babylonian. And, and so they were in that culture, but they were not of the world. They were not of that culture, and they maintained that by what they did. Think about it. With kneeling and praying and fasting, what do those both involve? Their bodies did they have control over Babylon and, and the king of Babylon and all of these realities outside of themselves? No. Do you have control over the government and the stock market and international relations? You don't, right? What did Daniel and the fellow servants have control over? Their power pack, their body. And they used their body in a way that maintained faithfulness to God. They remained rooted in, in God and their identity 
as his people in the midst of all of these situations that they could not control. And and this is where for us, I, I said this a couple weeks ago, there is an American rule of life, right? You wake up and what's the first thing you do? You look at your phone (laughs) and you immediately respond to the notifications and the emails and right. There's a, there's a rule of life that tells you exactly the ritual you do when you wake up. It tells you the ritual that you follow all through the day and it leads to anxiety and chaos, right? And naturally we're fed into that. And this is where we have, we have this call to intentionality that we we use our bodies and we use our minds and we use our time in a way that, that is intentional and, and that leads to, because the whole point of this, I said, is this just about willpower? This is rooted in, in, in a life of love to God and others. Does that make sense? The goal of a rule of life is to grow a life of, God, of love to God and others. So that's where all of this is headed, is is how can I grow in this life that is an expression of love to God and to others? And, and that's where we, we take these steps. And so the two actual disciplines are kneeling prayer from Justin Early, kneeling prayer three times a day and fasting from something for 24 hours. So kneeling prayer three times a day is the first one. And this does come very much out of Daniel. And so this was, again, something that I committed to was beginning to kneel in prayer. Now, is there something magical about what I'm doing right now? Does God love me more or listen to my prayers better right, when I do this? No. But there is a reality for me, that when I began this habit and began doing this routinely, do you know what my body actually automatically started to do around noon? I felt the impulse to kneel, <laughs> right? And I think this is this idea of we, we offer our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. So instead of impulses that naturally lead my body towards destruction... There was a way in which this physical discipline naturally oriented and, and, and led my body towards prayer, right? And so there was a way in which that was formative because once you feel the impulse to pray and you kneel down, guess what you're actually going to do? Pray, <laughs> right? Rather than forget to pray or whatever else that is an option. And so I think there's something that, that is... Again, this is, this is not self-righteousness or voodoo or anything along those lines, right? But I think there is something about our bodies and, um, and there is also something about the way it affects us. So Catherine Bell is an anthropologist. And she writes this, she says, kneeling does not merely communicate subordination. For all intents and purposes, kneeling produces a subordinated kneeler in and through the act itself. There's something formative about what we do. Sometimes when kneeling is not an option for me, I just take my hands, and we've done this sometimes in our show, and just open them up just like this. And so when I'm in a time of prayer, I just do this, and, and there's something about that, that that affects me in a certain way to receive from God. 
right? There's something that's an act of, of submission or surrender, and, and it, it helps me to have this mindset. Now, fasting, it's interesting that we see Jesus fasting, and in the midst of temptation, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and he says, man does not live by bread alone. Now, why is it important to see that man does not live by bread alone? Because typically we do, <laughs> right? Typically we see bread and food and all of these things as what provide us with the resources that we need for whatever it is that we're going through. And so when we, when we fast, and this could just be for a meal, there are any number of, of ways this can be expressed, but we realize our dependence on God in a real way. Because it's only God that is the giver of life. Does that make sense? God is the only one who's, the, the only soil that gives life is, is God. And there's a way in which we are, we are reminded of, of that when, when we deprive ourselves, we kind of empty ourselves in this way so that we remind only God can fill us, only God can give us life. And we, we experience that dependency in our bodies. And again, this is, it's, it's a discipline that allows our bodies and our experiences within our bodies to become a weapon for righteousness. To see these ultimate realities, these 5,000 foot realities that we say in our scriptures we believe, it allows us to actually experience them in a, in a powerful and a real way. And so as we come to our, our time for the Lord's Supper, this is also something that we do in our bodies. Right? It's something that we do regularly and it is, it is something that, that shapes us in a certain way. And, and this is where as we come to the supper, I want us to think about the fact that when we take the supper, we are, we are experiencing two realities. One is we are experiencing that the scripture tells us if we have turned from our sin and trusted in Christ, looked to him and him alone, his perfect sinless life lived in place of ours, his death on the cross to pay for all of our sins and bring us full forgiveness and his resurrection to empower and indwell us with the life-giving spirit of God, then what that means is that there is nothing we can do to be separated from the love of God in Christ. That love for us is secure, it's certain, and, and we draw life from, from that. And the second thing is that we are growing towards Christ. As we, as we think about taking the supper, we are reminded that we, we belong to Christ, right? That our lives are surrendered to him. Just as he gave himself for us, we now give our lives to him. And, and we think of his words in John six fifty five through 56. He says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. My flesh is true food my blood is true drink. We are, we are abiding or remaining in him and he in us. And this is what, this is what gives us life. And, and the question I want us to consider is what are other 
things that we try to eat at any level, to draw from, to consume, to give us life, right? In what ways are we, instead of feeding on Christ and drawing our life from him, what are other things that we're feeding on that we're seeking to draw our life from? And this is the question that I want us to consider. As we prepare, we'll do this a little bit different today. I want to ask two questions. One is, what do you need to release to God? Right? What is, is there a sin, a dependence that you have in your life that you are trying to draw life from and it's keeping you from, from feeding on Christ? What do you need to release to God? Is there bitterness and unforgiveness towards another person that you are holding on to that you need to release to God? Are you holding on to shame when Christ says, I took your shame at the cross? What do you need to release to God? And the second question is, what do you need to receive from God? Maybe we're there, I mean, obviously there is sin and so we, we need to receive forgiveness, which again, Christ has purchased and provided fully and finally. We need to receive empowerment in some way, some battle that we have that we're reminded, you, you have everything that you need for life and godliness through the spirit of Christ. You need to receive that empowerment, whatever that grace is, what do you need to receive from God? And so just take a moment right where you are in prayer. What do we need to release to God? What do we need to receive from God? Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.